0: This year marks the 40th anniversary of the death of Maura Comerford, who could be described as the Jeanne d'Arc of the Republican cause, the Irish Republican cause, that is. A committed Republican until her death, Maura's dedication to the cause of Irish freedom knew no bounds. Cycling across Ireland on her trusty bike during the War of Independence, she never shirked her duties.
1: I had a Pierce from Wexford, and it was a new one, and it went very well. I rode a lot of Galway and um, I rode the whole south, I suppose, from Kerry to Dublin along by Wexford. And um, a lot of Tipperary...
0: As you can hear, she certainly got around. Like many of her comrades in Common Amon, she opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty and took the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. She saw action in the Forecourts and the Hammam Hotel. She even managed to be caught on film, coolly cycling down Sackville Street in the midst of battle. Uh, But just who was this unmanageable revolutionary to uh, plagiarise the title of Margaret Ward's famous work? To discuss the life of Maura Comerford, I'm joined by Hilary Dulley, editor of the recently published book On Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution by Maura Comerford, and that's from Lilliput Press. You're very welcome indeed to the, the History Show, Hilary. Thank um, you, Miles. She's, she's one of the few women to write a memoir, really, of, of her activities during the Irish Revolution, written during the 40s and uh, 50s, but uh, only published in the last year. Did she try and get it published during her lifetime and why, on the face of it, how come it was never
2: published? Well, Maura did try very hard to get it published during her lifetime and um, on a couple of occasions she actually came close to it. And I suppose I I discovered it in the mid-1980s when I met my husband, who was Maura's nephew, and um, he was in possession of a very extensive archive which charts her whole revolutionary and Republican activities right up to her death in 1982. So when I first began to read the memoir, I was kind of struck by a few things, really. First, uh, the very extensive and detailed role that Maura played during the revolutionary period, which... I was quite surprised by, and also, of course, in relation to the number of other women who she mentions during her memoir. But I suppose the thing I was most struck by was how evocative the memoir was of the time. And, you know, the quality of her writing brought you right back into the period, and you almost felt like you were there. And also, um, even though she was very immersed in in the period, she wanted also, I think, to analyse what had happened, how it had, from her perspective, gone so wrong. So she was a great writer, I think. That was her profession. She later became a journalist. And she also spoke to a lot of people during the period of writing her memoir. And she says this herself. She wanted to talk to old comrades and old enemies. But I think the most striking thing for me was I just felt when I read the memoir that I was there during the period and it's that evocative nature of her writing which I think makes it very strong.
0: Now, the book is not just the memoir, because you used other material from this extensive archive that you that you that you talk about. Was it difficult to put a shape on it? Was it difficult to put an order on it? Or was the, the was the core of it already there? I mean, you say she was a good writer, so presumably that's the case. It was there.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, what what happened really is that it was all there, but there was an awful lot of it. Um, she did actually put a, a version of the memoir into the UCD archives in the 1970s. But when I began to thrall through the archive, I began to find more and more material, revised chapters, chapters she discarded and so on. And so I suppose my first job was to try and get all that material together, and uh, so I desperately began looking for a software package that might just translate the typed pages to some kind of Word document. So when I failed in doing that, I just typed everything in. So my guide was the template from the UCD archive. And then I suppose what I wanted to do after that was create a chronological narrative, because more tended to write thematically quite a lot rather than in chronological order. And I knew that she wanted not only to tell her story, but to tell the wider story of the period as well. So I saw that as my job, really, to try and do that. And so I began to look at the idea of having footnotes to explain just some of the fascinating characters, the people, the memoir, and that she might have given a lot of background information about, and to try and create... Her story, the story of all the women who um, were, I suppose, so cruelly written out of history. And then also to just give a sense of what it was like to be there at the time. Mm. So I mean, the
0: footnotes are definitely, they're extremely useful because they do explain who, who this person is, who that person is. Um, 1916, where was she in 1916? What was she up to?
2: Yeah, well, this was like Mora, um, of course, had a knack of being in the right place at the right time. And she happened to be in Dublin during 1916 as a young woman, um, visiting a very elderly and sick relative. So she just found herself um, in the middle of the 1916 Rising. And um, I think it's a really lovely, evocative chapter in the memoir because she is this a young woman walking the streets of Dublin all the rumors, all the people moving about, and that sense of just being um, part of something and yet not she she wasn't actually actively involved in 1916, but she did go and try to get into Stevens Green um, but then of course, she realized she had to go back to her elderly relative. Um, and so that was as she would say, you know, she was totally politicized after, her experiences, and I suppose what's happened subsequently mm-hmm. as well.
0: Well, let's hear that voice again and let's hear about that politicisation very shortly after 1916. Because in this clip, she talks about some of her early activities in Kumanaman during the anti conscription campaign of April 1918.
1: Conscription must have been coming up. I was in the early organisation of Kumanaman by Miss Bloxham. she was a member of the executive. but. Uh, Also very active in Sinn Féin and active in the anti-conscription organization. in fact, we we were busy night and day on between one thing and another. There was no stop in the activities. People were putting flags up on trees and flags on houses. And you watched the, uh, the British police, the RIC. It was their job to take down these flags and anyone who was my age at that time loved putting them up for the sake of the taking down part too.
0: Right, amongst the many tasks that Mora undertook was work for something called the White Cross. What was the White Cross?
2: Well, the White Cross was um, set up to offer relief to people who were suffering during the War of Independence and They couldn't uh, apply to the Red Cross, so this was set up and was funded from various different sources, including America. And Maura was sent by the White Cross around the country to um, document atrocities. And so she travelled all over the country and mainly in the beginning really to do with um, the black and tan atrocities but also murders and well anything really that the White Cross felt they needed to know in order to offer relief to people. So she would would have to liaise with the clergy, um, mostly Catholic priests because that's how the money had to be dispersed according to the White Cross rules and she would find people in need of help and then she would prepare reports and then those people would be offered assistance. So she was everywhere during that period.
0: OK, we hear her now talking about that work and the impact that it had on her.
2: When the
1: White Cross came, I was uh, employed as a kind of messenger. or Sometimes I was one of a commission investigating the, what the Black and Tans had done in the way of Burning houses and making first reports, preliminary reports of damage. People in Dublin didn't realize what it was like to be uh, alone in a country house which was remote. And that was where the black and tans went. They didn't burn houses in Dublin or in centers of population, but they went where people were lonely and where, you know, and they pulled them out and they burnt their houses in the night, that kind of thing. And I, I was tremendously privileged to be able to meet some of those people.
0: Now, the majority of demand opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty, Maura included, but unlike many of her contemporaries' writings, she actually writes a lot about her activities in the Irish Civil War, which makes her memoir even more important. Um, certainly, as we're now reaching the centenary of that event, describe to me how she got involved in the in the civil war particularly in the in the early weeks the early days in dublin
2: yeah well i think uh, Maura was very clear from the beginning that she and a, a lot of her comannon comrades were were not going to support the treaty so i suppose she began to get involved with the anti-treaty side from the very beginning um, she was in the Four Courts um, and she was with the Four Courts garrison and then following the surrender then she went on to work for the Dublin Resistance and um, I think that again is a just, just a very interesting part of the memoir because I um, I think in some ways, because it's written by a woman, it it humanises it to a greater extent. So, you know, she is talking about, you know, what happened militarily, but she also presents kind of pen portraits of people like Cocklebrook and Lee Mellows. And um, she writes, again. you know, I mean, I know I'm using this word evocative quite a lot, but she, she does paint a picture of that absolute sense of betrayal, um... The sense that it was kind of win or die and um, that was non-negotiable for many of these women and, of course, for, for many men as well. And that was something that she held for the rest of her life. So she remained a very staunch supporter of the Republican cause.
0: Well, let's rewind to the point where Common hold the convention. They were first to hold a convention and vote on whether they would accept or reject the treaty. And we're going to hear Maura explain why the majority of Common and as far as she was concerned, rejected it.
1: Well, we were all for the Republic. The politicians at that debate I was talking about, uh, de Valera said that he had been trying to prepare the Dal for a compromise. Uh, The leadership apparently recognised that they, they would do something which was a compromise but we who were in the republican forces particularly in the volunteers or Kumanuman, we had been kept going by the assurance all the time that we were defending an established government it, it was democratically elected, it was established and it would never be given away it, it was the rock, we were standing on this rock and we were defending that it was a dreadful blow And our comrades had died for that. And also, I suppose, I felt particularly involved because the people I'd been meeting when I was going round the country, the people who had really suffered, the poor and the unemployed, we had asked them to make sacrifices, uh, which were just being thrown overboard by these politicians who thought some settlement would do all right.
0: So, obviously, because of her anti-treaty stance, it would have meant that she would have fallen out with people that she had been associated with in Common Amon and elsewhere. Females, women, like herself, uh, for many, many years. And I'm thinking particularly of somebody like Min Ryan, who was married to Richard Mulcahy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the narrative has always been brother against brother, but I think that uh, certainly applies sister (laughs) against sister. And as many people will know, I mean, after the that Common Among Convention, um there was another group set up which was called Common Assertia and they were supporters of um the free state and um they they didn't work in parallel, they did work against each other and I suppose the incident with Min Ryan really would be um, Maura describes in her memoir. Um, she was involved. Um, well, she 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 always writes very modestly, but she just mentions that she was involved in a plot to kidnap Cosgrave, and she was driving uh, a car. They had been given a car to uh, check out a safe house for this plot, which was supposed to happen, I suppose, in the next few weeks. And the car broke down, which happened very frequently, actually. She's a lot of car-breaking-down incidents. Um, and they hailed a taxi. And unfortunately, me and Ryan happened to be in the taxi and recognised Maura. And as Maura said, she pretended not to recognise her, but she did. And so the next post she came to, she informed on where Maura was. And meanwhile, she had gone off to try and get another car. But when she came back, she was arrested. And um, I suppose that's kind of the the tragedy, again, of the Civil War, which um, is going to be very difficult to negotiate for us all in the next while, is that sense of betrayal. But then on on the other hand, she would talk about um, maintaining a friendship with Mabel Fitzgerald, you know, even though they would have been, I suppose, to some degree. I I think Mabel was probably always a bit not quite sure uh, which side to go with, but I, I mean, had to because of her husband. So, but she would talk about maintaining a friendship and meeting for cups of coffee. So it wasn't. I don't think it was all the women who stayed with Cumminhamall and all the women who went with Cumminsersia the that they were all bitter enemies. But I do think that there was a lot of bad feeling, much the same as there was between the men.
0: Mm. She went on a mission of some kind to the to the USA. Tell us what that trip was about.
2: Yeah, she was she was imprisoned in at that time, from that um, incident where Min Ryan informed on her. And um, she when she came out of prison, de Valera um, sent her on a, a mission to the uh, United States and she travelled. There were other women there as well, quite a number of other women, um, and she mentions that, um, Hannah Shee, Skeffington, Margaret Pierce. So there was a lot of people who went to the US at the time to to try and raise money and to try and keep the Republican cause alive in the in the USA. So she did a lot of speaking engagements. You know, she spoke uh, at various different events. She was there for nine months. Um, but as she describes it, she, she was homesick for every minute of it because she was you know, a lot of her comrades were back in Ireland on hunger strike. And so she was very anxious about what was happening back home. And when she did come back, her American friends had insisted upon putting some guns into her case. But um that's a kind of sad moment as well, because when she gets back, she realises that, you know, that's the last thing the Republicans wanted to see at that time, because, you know, it had, disintegrated. The war was effectively over, the Civil War, when she returned.
0: Now, when the Civil War ended, she didn't just go into hibernation. She was imprisoned for nine months in Mount Joy at the end of 1926. What did she do to merit a jail sentence on that occasion?
2: Yeah, again, you know, more is modesty. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't really know how much she did from what she writes, but... Um, she was involved, um, and indeed she is credited with being the instigator of a campaign which was run by a number of women in on to, um, I suppose, effectively intimidate juries in Republican trials. So where Republicans were on trial, they would locate the jury members and ask them, I suppose, to do what she would consider to be their patriotic duty to acquit them, basically. And um, it was a very concerted campaign that went on for a number of years. Um, And I think it probably uh, merits a lot more research, that particular period of time and the women who were involved. Um, So, you know, uh, Sheila Humphreys was very prominent in it and Helena Maloney, and the three of them were arrested, um, having, there was 20,000, I think, pamphlets, which were called ghosts, um, or signed by ghosts. And th- these were, um, you know, just in relation to this jury intimidation, um, that w- what they were doing in relation to that. And 20,000 seems like an extraordinary number. They posted them up and they were found with these and they were taken to court um, where they behaved very badly, did their knitting, um, talked in an Irish and just were generally utterly defiant um, and so they were imprisoned
0: after the Civil War also she really falls on hard times doesn't she
2: Oh she does yeah I like an awful lot of other people she she really had no resources when she came out of the Civil War um, and so she'd no job she'd no home. And she got the land of a cottage um, from her friend, Father Sweetman, in Gorey, in County Wexford. And she ran a poultry farm, a very small poultry farm, eked out a living for 10, 11 years, and was only really rescued, I suppose, to some degree from that life of really hardship and poverty by securing a job in the Irish press in 1935.
0: So in other words, she's... Basically rescued by Eamon De Valera's publication,
2: she is rescued by Eamon De Valera's publication. Um, but um, I don't think she was his biggest fan. But I think I like to think anyway um, that they they were they were very close comrades at one time. She was his driver, and um, she escorted him over mountains. They walked over mountains together for days, and I suppose he didn't forget that and um, and that's you know sort of the complications of all these relationships I think he maintained a fondness for her and heard I suppose of her very poor circumstances and may well have played some role in getting her that job in the Irish press
0: Well it's a fascinating she's a fascinating woman and it's a it's a, it's a wonderful memoir beautifully written brilliantly edited and uh, for those of you who want to know more about Maura Comerford and the role of women indeed in the Irish Revolution because that as Hillary was saying is very much part of what uh, Maura Comerford was writing about the books to read are Unmanageable Revolutionaries by Dr Margaret Ward, uh, but this particular book, On Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution by Maura Comerford, edited by Hilary Dully, published by Lilliput Press. Uh, Hilary, thank you very much indeed for joining us
2: on the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. Fill up once more,
1: we'll drink a toast To comrades far away no nation upon earth can boast Of braver hearts than they And though they sleep in dungeons deep Or flee out loud and bound, We love them yet We can't forget the felons of our land and though they sleep in dungeons deep, are flee outlawed and banned. We love them yet, we can't forget the felons of our land.
0: That's all we have time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.